I don't know about you, but I believe in spiritual warfare. Uh, I believe that demons are real. And I believe that they not only want to uh, cause you to have a bad day, they want to destroy you. Uh, The Bible says this, that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he wants nothing more than to devour you and to devour me. He wants to destroy churches and he wants to destroy families. He does not want to, um, again, does not simply want to frustrate or aggravate us. It is much, much more. I'm also convinced, because I believe in the reality of spiritual warfare, that I'm not surprised when we are going to preach a message related to demons, Satan and his demons, Satan and his angels, that it would not surprised that it would be a difficult week, not surprised that there would be many things that would come up within the life of our congregation, not surprised that some would come in today and you can tell by the look upon their face that they are frustrated. Not surprised that some who would regularly normally be here would at the last minute not be able to come. And the reason I'm not surprised by those things is because I believe in spiritual warfare. The Bible speaks of it time and time and time again. Some would choose to just avoid the matter altogether and to always preach on the promises of God and always preach on the glory passages, if you will. But I believe that I'm commanded to preach the whole uh, counsel of God. And therefore, in preaching the whole counsel of God, we need to dig into some things that may not be the, the most popular, may not be the most attractional sermon there is. I was laughing. As you know, I have a lot of pastor friends and typically on Saturday or Sunday mornings, they're posting on Facebook, can't wait for tomorrow, going to preach on this great truth or this great passage of Scripture and going to really you know, do this and do that. And I'm thinking, I guess I could put on there, can't wait for tomorrow, I'm preaching on Satan and his demons. This doesn't quite have the same uh, effect in terms of gathering the attention of people and calling them to come to worship. And yet, that is exactly what God would have for us to do, uh, particularly since we are walking verse by verse through the book of the Revelation. And Sarah read a passage of Scripture for us, and we're going to look at that passage of Scripture, but let's be reminded that we are studying the book of Revelation, and we're walking through this book verse by verse, sort of phrase by phrase, from beginning to end. And when we come to the trumpet judgments here in Revelation chapter 9, it is vitally important that we have some background information that will help us to make better sense of the next couple of chapters beginning in Revelation chapter 9 verse 1. And so we've spent last week and this week uh, doing somewhat of an introductory message to help us understand the elements and things that we're going to find here in Revelation chapter 9. So if you've been following along, you know that we are in the trumpet judgments of God. And um, there, there are presence angels, angels who stay in the presence of God. And of these seven angels there in the presence of God, they have been given trumpets. And with the sounding of the trumpet, judgment or God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. In the seal judgments, we studied just before the trumpet judgments, and even in the first part of the trumpet judgments, we have seen that God, um, who is worthy to be worshipped uh, and honored, uh, is, is worthy of worship and honor because of the creation with which He created. And He's worthy of worship and honor because of the people that He has redeemed to give Him glory. 
And last week in particular, we noticed how God, who is in sovereign control, full providence over everything, can use everything that He created for His plans and for His purpose. And so we've seen in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now in the book of Revelation, we see that He is taking back, He is reclaiming those things, the things that He has blessed us with that we could look out and see, both visible and the things we can't see, the invisible that we discover and that God reveals in those things. All of those things are to praise, honor, and glorify God. And in God's judgment wrath, we've already seen that He has brought uh, His wrath and even used the earth... Right, use the earth under His judgment to bring wrath upon His people. So we've seen, for example, the trees that God created and that He marveled in. And, and He says that as the wind whistles through the trees, they, they whistle praise to His name. And yet in God's judgment, He burned up the trees of the earth. He's burned up the grass and then it'll grow back and He'll do so again. We've already seen the pristine oceans that He created that glisten and sparkle. Um, The waves that come in that He has set the boundaries on be turned to blood and be used to bring about judgment upon uh, God's people. Or not God's people, but the people of the earth. And we also have seen, even in this here in Revelation 9, that God has used the angels, the good angels, the holy angels that He created, and He He called them, and whether it was the living creatures on the four horses that we saw in the first four seal judgments, or it's the presence angels who blow the trumpet to usher in the next, that God uses His holy angels as His messenger and as His means of judgment and wrath upon the earth. God is in sovereign and providentially in control of all of those things, and they respond and obey to His every word. And then last week we also discovered that even the fallen angels of God, including Satan himself, will be used of God, controlled by Him, given boundaries upon which they can do their work, will be used, even as we begin to see this in Revelation chapter 9, to pour out His wrath, God's wrath, not Satan's wrath, God's wrath for His purposes according to His plan upon the earth. And so in order to better understand Revelation 9, I want us to spend some time today speaking um, uh, on the subject of demons, um, Satan, demons, uh, what they're like, Um, and how different they are from the holy angels. And I want today to introduce the idea of the bottomless pit or the abyss that the Bible speaks about on many, many occasions so that we will be prepared with understanding when we come to Revelation chapter 9. So we begin with Revelation chapter 9 verse 1, and I just want to read this verse just to give you uh, an idea. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the fifth angel sounded. And remember that the fifth angel sounded the trumpet. So trumpets were given to them. The fifth angel sounded. Um, That's the trumpet. And notice it says, And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. Now, immediately when we see the idea of star, and we'll touch base on this next week, but I just want to point it out while we're here, we think of constellations in the sky. And we perhaps we're thinking about a, a shooting star or a falling star. And we have in our mind the idea of this, um, this star in the sky being hurled to the earth, this fireball coming down. And perhaps visually that may be what it looked like. We, we don't know. What we do know is, is that when the fifth angel sounded, a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the bottomless pit was given not to it, but to him. Do you see that? So it's not talking about a constellation. It's not talking about a star. Whatever this star is, this messenger, this being that's there, 
this key, a key to some pit, it's a bottomless pit, it's a locked pit, was given to him. And now you begin to understand why we need to do some background study so that when we come here, we're not guessing what this is, we're not guessing what this is about, we're not bringing in other imagery, we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible for itself and draw on the whole of Scripture to bring meaning and context and interpretation to Revelation chapter 9. And to do that, I want us to go back to the passage of Scripture that Sarah read in Luke chapter 8, and let's learn some things about demons. Let's learn some things about Satan. Let's learn some things about demons today. In Luke chapter 8, Sarah read for us verses 26 through 40. And um, I want to just walk through this passage of Scripture, and we're going to bring in some verses from the parallel passages as well. And I want us to kind of, uh, again, just be reminded perhaps of some things that we already know. The first thing I want you to understand is that the demons and Satan himself were initially created good, but ultimately... Pride, rebellion welled up in the heart of Satan and he was cast from heaven to earth and we have studied this extensively both in Isaiah and Ezekiel in the past. So where we pick up in our story here in chapter 8 is this is during the ministry of Jesus and Jesus is going throughout the region and he's doing a great deal of ministry. Uh, Jesus' ministry uh, uh, was simply categorized on multiple occasions as healing the sick, uh, teaching in the temple, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And here he is in, in an area called the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, depending on the, the name is, is synonymous for the same place. And and it's opposite of Galilee, verse 26 says. And Jesus has an encounter with this demon. This would not be Jesus' first encounter. He had many such encounters, and we'll look at a couple of them uh, today. But in every situation, what we see is, is we see that that um, uh, these demons uh, work and move and operate only to the extent they, they are allowed or permitted to do so. So I want you to understand that even Satan and his demons who operate according to their free will are under the sovereign control of God. It's also worth noting in this passage of Scripture as we see Jesus' interaction with with this demon or these demons here in this passage of Scripture that this is Jesus in His first coming. This is Jesus in His humility. This is not Jesus in His second coming. And yet even Jesus in His first coming, coming in humility, I want you to see the power and the authority that He has over the demons even in His position of humility. Jesus did not gain authority and power over the demons once He died on the cross. He had the authority. It had already been given to Him because He is ultimately God. And even coming in the flesh, in His humility, you're going to see that He has great authority and control over demons. So first of all, in verse 27, what we see is when permitted by God, that demons can enter into people. Let's be clear about that. When permitted by God, demons can enter into people. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 27. And when Jesus came onto the land, He was met by a man from the city, and notice what it says, who was possessed with demons. So demons had entered into this man. And it's not just one demon that entered into this man. 
Because later on, Jesus identifies, as Jesus is engaged in conversation with this, Jesus, who knows all things, wasn't asking the question because He didn't know the answer. He was asking the questions to show that even when He asked questions, the demons have to answer. And so a little bit further down, Jesus in verse 30 asked Him, What is your name? And He, the man said, Legion. Now look at what it says in verse 30. For many demons had entered Him. So when God permits, it is possible for demons to enter into and possess individuals. Now, I do not believe personally that demons can enter in and possess born-again Christians. Um, I believe that when a person is born again, that in addition to being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God into the day of redemption, that the Holy Spirit of God indwells them and lives inside of them. And I don't see any evidence in Scripture of a born-again Christian being possessed by a demon. Possessed by the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you, but the Holy Spirit of God and Satan and his demons cannot dwell in the same place and would not be tolerated. So I do not believe that a demon can enter into and possess a Christian, but this man clearly wasn't a Christian, and this was certainly in the time before Christ died on the cross and rose again, and the Holy Spirit came down and sealed every uh, every person. But I do believe that Christians can be not possessed by demons, but oppressed by them. In other words, rather than being used, as we're going to see a little bit later on in this message, as a conduit where Satan enters into them and wreaks havoc and torment on them or works through them, Satan in the Christian's life comes on the outside and oppresses him, changes his outlook and perspective, directs his eyes towards that which he ought not to be directed to, and things of that nature. But we can see that demons can and do enter into to people, first of all. Secondly, we see that demons can and do torment humans. Notice what it says here in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, that this man constantly, night and day, was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. We also understand that this man had supernatural strength. So even when they tried to contain him with chains, he was able to break the chains and no man could bind him, no man could hold him, and this man was being tormented by demons. We also see in this account that demons also, if you go back to Luke chapter 8, and you'll see it in the other accounts as well, demons also know who Jesus is. I think this is a fascinating uh, uh, aspect. Remember, Jesus was certainly God. Jesus would have known by, be known by Satan and his demons prior to his incarnation prior to the creation of the heavens and earth, when the holy angels were created, the holy angels, even then at that time, Satan and his demons before their fall, they knew and recognized Jesus in that eternal state. I find it very interesting that even in his human state, still being fully God and fully man, the demons still recognize him and they always, and this is an unusual thing in the scripture, they always have to expose themselves in His presence. Let me show you what I mean. Here is Jesus. And notice it says He comes on the land. Jesus sees this man. Now notice verse 28. Seeing Jesus, He cried out and fell before Him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus? Now notice what they know. This is the demon speaking, not the man. Notice what they know about Jesus. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. 
Jesus didn't go and point him out, hey you demon. Jesus showed up on the land, observed what was there, and the demons exposed themselves. The power that was behind this man in the torment and in the things there exposed himself and came out and had to be exposed and identified in the presence of Jesus. If you were to go to another occasion, Jesus just showed up at church one day there in the synagogue. And while He was there in the synagogue, uh, immediately this man who was possessed with the demon just spoke out and identified himself. And could you imagine the other people sitting in church and all of a sudden Jesus comes in and sits down? And this man that everybody knows, probably spoke to every week, had no idea that this man was possessed with the demon. All of a sudden Jesus comes in and sits down and he has to, he, this demon possessed man, this demon inside this man had to speak out and had to be exposed. I want to think about that for for just a moment. In the presence of pure light, darkness must be revealed. These demons had no power or ability to keep understand Jesus and they are proclaiming in and of themselves without any coercion, without anyone making them identify who He is. They are just exposing what they know to be about Jesus and proclaiming the name of Jesus and the Son of God even there. They know who Jesus is. I think it's also worth pointing out that demons who can torment people also fear being tormented. They who torment people also fear being tormented. And they understand that their torment is going to come from none other than Jesus Himself. Notice what it says here again in verse 28. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now look at this. Look at this. These demons, legion, right? 6,000 demons. That's what legion is. Entered into this man. And in this legion of demons, they look at singular Jesus in His humility. And they say to Him, I beg you, do not torment me. You see, demons know and understand that judgment is coming. And these demons, they, yes, do a lot of tormenting, but they themselves fear being tormented. And ultimately, as you and I know, they will forever be tormented in hell, which was created for the devil and his angels, according to Matthew 25, 41. So demons can torment and demons can be tormented. And in fact, I think it's worth pointing out that demons know that judgment is coming. They live every day of their lives understanding that judgment is coming. Notice what it says here. Verse 29, Jesus commanded, um, I beg you, do not torment me. Do not torment me. Go over if you would. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew's account of this. Matthew's parallel account of the uh, uh, of this. And look in verse 29. In verse 29, notice it says, and what business do, do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here, now look at this, to torment us before the time. So these demons know that there is a time and this time is coming for which they will be tormented and ultimately judged. 
In fact, in just a moment when we look at some other verses, we're going to see that there are a subset of demons who are being held and what we're going to talk about in just a minute, the abyss, and they're reserved in chains of darkness, reserved for final judgment. So demons understand that judgment is coming and they know that Jesus, even in His humility, has the power to torment them and has the power to bring this judgment upon them. And then when we come to verse 31 in Luke chapter 8, what we also see is that demons knew about and feared the abyss. Demons knew about and feared the abyss. Go back to chapter 8. Verse 30, Luke chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Into the abyss. Now, I just want to point out here that these demons know of a place. They, They knew of a place, and it was a place, get this, that demons did not want to go. And by the way, that place was not church. They happily went to church. Uh, they still happily go to church today. That's a different sermon for a different time. Demons, they know about this place and this place that they don't want to go. And this place is a place located somewhere called by several names in the Bible. We're going to look at a couple of these passages called the abyss. Now, what in the world is the abyss? Where is it? Are there any demons there now? How would these demons know about the abyss? And what is it they fear about this place that Luke calls in his Gospel the abyss. Well, if we study what Scripture says in other places, we learn that there is this place. Here it's called the abyss. A similar concept is found in 1 Peter. Let's bring 1 Peter 3, 17 uh, in. If you flip over in your Bible... There's a, we had the same concept, though the word abyss is not used here, but it is the same concept that I think will help us to gain an understanding of what this abyss is, um, why, why it exists, and, and, and who's there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter is writing to encourage Christians who are under the um, persecution of Nero. They are being slaughtered for their faith. And he's writing to point them to Jesus, to encourage them to be faithful. And he's also reminding them that Christ suffered in the same manner uh, and that Christ suffered. And uh, sometimes, beloved, and you'll not hear this, this is not popular preaching, but sometimes, listen to me, it is the will of God that you suffer. Prosperity theology preachers would tell you the reason you suffer is because you don't have enough faith. The reason you suffer is because you, right, you, you, you don't have enough faith to overcome it. If you had the faith of a grain of a mustard to say this mountain be removed, then you could speak to your trials and troubles and they, and they would be gone. Uh, the prosperity theology gospel teaches that suffering does not come on God's people, that He wants you to prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And what I want you to understand is, is you can prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers and still suffer in the will of God. Not suffer outside of the will of God, suffer in the will of God. Notice what it says. Peter is reminding his readers of that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, for he says, It is better. It's not that it's good, it's a step above good. It is better, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 
I used to have the idea, and I don't want to get sidetracked here for, for time's sake, but I used to have the idea when I was a baby Christian that if I just walked with God and was obedient, and I avoided sin, I read my Bible, I prayed, I jumped through the spiritual moves, attended worship, gave my tithes and all these things, and did everything I was supposed to do, that God would protect me from trials and troubles and tribulation. And when trials and troubles and tribulations came upon my life, I could look and see that sin had entered in, I had lost my focus, I had gotten off track, and therefore I had gotten out of the will of God. And when I got out of the will of God, I got out of the protection of God from trials and troubles and tribulations. And therefore, by my disobedience, I brought those things on myself. And while in some cases that is exactly true, but this passage teaches, and when we preach through 1 Peter, and we'll do it again because I, I, this is my favorite book of the Bible, Sometimes it's the will of God that you suffer not for doing wrong, not when you step outside of the boundaries, but when you're doing exactly right in the will of God for the right reasons, the right motives, led by God in obedient to His will. It is sometimes the will of God to suffer. Well, who's our model for that? I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for blessing and prosperity and God would, right, He would bless me abundantly and multiply my finances and, and, and right, and do all of these great things for us. Who is the example of the, the person who did right and suffered for it? Oh, look right here. The example is our Savior, Jesus. Notice what it says here in verse 18. It says, For Christ also died for sins, not His own, but the sins of the world. Also died once for all. Now look at this. He being the just, died for the unjust. Now think about that for just a moment. If you think that you're being victimized, if you think that you're being unfairly treated, if you think that you're unduly having a bad day or a difficult day in your walk with God and trying to be in the will of God and do things accordingly, your example is Jesus who was just and He was crucified. He was crucified, the just for the unjust. And He did it for His purpose, the purpose of God, so that He might bring us to God. Now, now notice this. Jesus suffered. He was having been put to death in the flesh. You know that that's on the cross. Jesus died, put the death in the flesh. His body went into the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But His Spirit departed from His body and went. And notice what it says. Notice the time frame. Put the death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now where? In prison. In prison. Jesus' body lay in the tomb for three days. When it says that He was alive in the Spirit, that is not talking about His resurrection was only in Spirit only, for we know that His resurrection was in physical body form as well. He could eat. He could be touched. He could be clung to. But He went during the time of His crucifixion and His resurrection into this place, this prison, also known as the abyss, also known as the bottomless pit, and went and pronounced victory over these demons. When He made proclamation to them, He's not giving them an opportunity to repent and believe. So, so who are these spirits that are in prison? Well, verse 20 tells us that they're these spirits who are now in prison in Peter's day. And these spirits were once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I, we could get confused and lost right here. I thought we were talking about Jesus. 
that's in Jesus' time. And now we're talking about Noah, that's in Noah's time. Well, well, what's going on here? Let's bring a couple of the verses in, and then let's let's make sense of it. Let's go over to Second Peter. Just turn it right in your Bible to Second Peter, chapter two, verse four. Refers to this uh, as well. Second Peter, chapter two, verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, now do angels sin? The holy angels of God do not sin, but Demons do, right? They were created perfect and holy. They sinned against a holy God. So these angels, so God did not spare angels when they sinned, but He cast them into hell or into Hades is the word for hell there. And He committed them to pits of darkness. Now, now this is not... The ultimate, this, this word translated New American Standard, hell, is not the final lake of fire, hell, that they will ultimately be cast into. According to Matthew 25, 41, we see this in Revelation chapter 20. What this is, is this is the word Hades. So Hades seems to be this holding place for some subset of fallen angels. When these these angels who go about the earth and do all of this evil, cause all of this devastation and destruction, when they cross the line or go as far as God would have them to go, in some way, some subset of demons, not all demons are here, but some subset of demons, when they sinned in a way that God said enough is enough, He rounded those demons up and placed them in a holding place in what the Bible calls Hades. It's also the bottomless pit. It's also this prison that they are reserved in. It's also called the abyss. These angels, they are, they, he, he cast them into Hades, into hell, and He committed them to pits of darkness. For what purpose? They are there reserved for judgment. You see that there in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4? One other verse that I want to bring in. Keep turning to the right in your, in your Bibles. What in the world? I mean, if demons, all they do is uh, sin anyway and, and, and wreak havoc and torment and, and, and do all of these things, what in the world did some demons do that God said enough is enough and He rounded them up? Well, we have a clue. We saw a clue in First Peter, but but look at what it says in in Jude. And if you have to ask what chapter, you probably need to read Jude a little more carefully because there's only one chapter in twenty five verses. But but look in Jude six. Jude says this in Jude verse six: "And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode." He has kept, now look at this, in eternal bonds under darkness. So they're reserved in darkness, reserved there in darkness for the judgment of that great day. Now, let's let's tie some things together to give us an an understanding of, of what we see here. Luke chapter 8, these demons exposed by Jesus know that they're going to be tormented and know that judgment is coming and beg Jesus not to torment them now. They also ask not to be cast into the abyss. So these demons in Luke 8 that roam the earth and do the work that demons do upon the earth know that the abyss exists. They also know that they don't want to go there. They don't want to go there. 
In fact, they beg Jesus not to send them there. If Jesus sends them there, they can't continue to do the work that they're doing upon the earth. They can't continue to impact. They can't continue to influence. They can't continue to cause people to sin. They can't continue all the things and all the evil and wreak all the havoc they're wreaking if they are locked in chains, in prison, in darkness, awaiting the final judgment. So they don't want to go there. So demons know that that place exists. Demons fear that place. They know it's a place of judgment and torment. They also know that there are already demons, some subset of demons who are already there. And whatever they did to get there must be pretty bad. Well, what they do? According to Jude, they did not keep their own domain, but left their proper abode. The way I understand that is this. Colossians tells us that when we are saved, when we are saved, that God delivers us from the domain of darkness into the, the, the domain of the Son whom He loves. If we go back and we tie in the time frame looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, this happened in the days of Noah. This happened before the flood came. In general, in short, without belaboring the point and, and leaving you to do some study on your own, we've looked at this intensely in the past. One of the reasons that God flooded the earth and brought judgment upon the whole earth is because according to Genesis chapter 6, demons, now they're identified as the sons of God, not the Son of God like Jesus, more like the, the angels. Job identifies the demons as little s sons of God as well. These sons of God, these demons in Genesis chapter 6, after trying to corrupt the entire race, since God announced that his that Satan's final judgment was going to come through the seed of the woman, Satan has been trying to destroy and corrupt the human race from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 forward. He tried to do it by having Cain kill Abel, and yet God gave another seed um, uh, Abel to be born to carry on the seed lineage. He tried several means, several ways. He tried pride. He tried to build a tower up to God and God scattered him and brought judgment in, later on in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 6, the things that they tried was the sons of God, these fallen angels, cohabitated with the daughters of men and in so doing created another race, if you will, and when that happened, that was the final straw that God broke, brought judgment on the entire earth, killed everybody and everything except the eight people that He spared to keep the seed lineage moving forward. And He rounded up the demons that did not keep their proper domain and He reserved them in the abyss and in chains of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, we don't know how many are there. We don't know what percentage of the demons are there. We don't know if it's 25% that are reserved in change or 75% that are not. Is that 50-50? We don't have a clue what it is. What we know is, is we know and affirm that the Bible teaches that there are these spirits, these demonic spirits that are in prison, in the abyss, reserved in chains of darkness, and God brought judgment upon the earth because of them, and they are reserved in the abyss, in the prison, in this bottomless pit, and they have no ability to escape. They have no ability to get out. Satan does not have the key to that bottomless pit. Satan cannot round up his demons and put them in there. And he certainly cannot unlock unless God gives him the key. He cannot unlock and let them escape and get out. He has no ability or capacity to do that. And we're going to see in Revelation chapter 9 that that is exactly what happens. That a key is given to the bottomless pit to release these demons to come 
And we're going to see in Revelation chapter 9 that God not only used creation to bring about His judgment, and God not only used man whom He created in His image and likeness to bring about judgment, and God not only uses the holy angels whom He created to bring about judgment and pour out His wrath upon the earth, But in Revelation chapter 9 and in several places following, we are going to see that God used the demons and even Satan himself that he created to carry out his judgments and his wrath upon the earth as well. Just a couple other things quickly that we need to just be reminded of before we start our study of Revelation 9 next week. And that is, folks, that there certainly are differences between holy angels and demons. Between holy angels and demons. Um, for example, you can study the Scriptures. We know that Satan has his, uh, has his holy angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says that hell was created for Satan and his demons. We know that those demons are organized. We saw this last week in Ephesians chapter 6. There are at least four rankings of the demons. There's principalities, there's powers, there's forces of darkness. They have arranged themselves as much like the holy angels have arranged themselves. They have arranged themselves in an order and operate according to that. And we don't know what that, we just know the order exists. We don't know the separation of the powers or anything along those lines. But what we do know from studying scriptures is one of the differences between holy angels and demons are that Satan and his angels, they never get to just manifest themselves. You never get to. You've never seen one because they don't have the ability to to come and to expose themselves or to reveal themselves. Um, that's different from the holy angels of God. The holy angels of God, they have the ability, well, to do a couple of things. They can just show up in the sky and reveal themselves and announce the birth of Jesus. There are other places in Scripture where, uh, for example, the passage of Scripture where we get the movie The Chariots of Fire, that Elijah says, I wish that you would open up the eyes that they could see the, the warrior angels around them. And God does, and they see all these warrior angels. They can just manifest themselves. Holy angels can just reveal themselves and express themselves exactly as they are, as they want to. And they must be pretty impressive beings because the first thing they always say is fear not when they expose themselves. At the same time, Satan and his angels, since they cannot manifest themselves, they always, always, always have to use a conduit. They have to have a vessel through which to possess in order to work. Now we see this all the way from the beginning, don't we? Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? And then we get to chapter 3 and during the fall, how does Satan reveal himself? He reveals himself. Listen, he doesn't just manifest his presence. No, no. He first enters into the serpent. I would have loved to know the conversation. We get to heaven because apparently animals could talk back then. Eve was not surprised at all that the serpent could speak. Would you not like to hear the conversation between the devil and the serpent before he possessed him and what he did? How that worked? Something to think about. But he had to use the serpent to do his work in order to bring about the fall. In Luke chapter 8, he had to use the, the demon, uh, 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 demoniac. When they wanted to be cast out, they begged Jesus not to cast them into the abyss, but to be sent into the pigs, which He did. He sent them into the pigs who ultimately went over the cliff and drowned. And we don't know what happened to those spirits at that time. Were they just free from a conduit? Were they sent to the abyss? We don't have a clue about those things. Angels, on the other hand, they can reveal themselves. They can just manifest themselves. But they also... They also can clothe themselves to look like humans and come 
and stand in front of you as holy angels of God and you never even know that's who they are. In fact, remember, there were the men who came and met uh, Abram before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and these two men who ultimately were angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we also see that the book of Hebrews says that sometimes there are people who come into our life who bless us, who direct us, who, who do something in some way and just disappear and we wonder who this person is must be an angel of God. And Hebrews says that sometimes we right, entertain angels unaware. Angels have the ability to manifest themselves in holy angels as their being. They have the ability to manifest themselves through as, as humans. Demons, on the other hand, including Satan himself, never exposes himself. Even when Jesus, when, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan didn't reveal himself and come and it wasn't face to face there. He came as the tempter. We also see this in John chapter 13 and bring about the crucifixion if you want to just make a note here. In John chapter 13, Jesus is meeting with His disciples. And when He meets with, with His disciples, we see, uh, for example, um, in John chapter 13, verse 27, um, Jesus has said the one who dips the morsel into the same cup with Him and, and when he gave it to him, so when he dipped the morsel, he took and he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into Judas, and Judas was the conduit that Satan used to ultimately bring Jesus to the cross. I find it interesting in John thirteen twenty eight or twenty seven. Therefore, Jesus said, after Satan entered into Judas, Jesus said to him, "What you do, do quickly." And there's a sense that Jesus is speaking to Judas and saying what you do, do quickly. But there's also a sense that Jesus is directing Satan what you do, do quickly. Because Satan has to have a conduit in order to work through. A couple other things. Satan in general is one person in one being. And he's only at one place at one time. And apparently he spends a lot of time in heaven. Now, I know that may sound a little strange that Satan would spend time in heaven, but remember, he is our accuser, and he spends a lot of time in heaven, in the throne room of God, making accusations against us. At the same time, if he is on earth, and where he is, he's only at one place at one time. So he's not everywhere. Now, he has at least one-third of the angels, an untold number of demons, and he uses them, as Clarence always says, I wish Clarence was here today, as Satan's minions, Clarence calls them. And, and, and so he always uses them. So it always seems as if between Satan and his demons, he's omnipresent, but beloved, he is not, and they are not. They are in one place at one time. And by the way, You've never seen Satan and you've never seen a demon. And I haven't either. By the grace and mercy of God. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, think about if the angels come and in presenting themselves, the first thing they have to say is, is fear not. They're, even the holy angels' appearance and presence must be, I mean, unbelievably... Uh, I, I, I didn't know what adjective to use that would capture the tension and instill that type of fear in the lives of someone when the holy angels expose themselves. Let alone if a demon would have exposed themselves. We have no description of what Satan looks like. We have no description of what demons look like. Until you get to Revelation chapter 9. And in Revelation chapter 9, we're giving a description of what the demons look like. So again, what's the point of all of this? 
The point of all of this, I think, is simply to say this, that Satan is real, that demons are real. He is a defeated foe, but yet he still remains powerful. There are those who are good, solid, Bible-believing Christians who hold to not the pre-mill tribulation that we hold to, not that the church will be raptured and the tribulation period comes and after that, they hold to the amillennial position. These are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them. We've had many, because we're tied to the Reformed theology, we have had many uh, or several guests who have come here, and one of the reasons they're no longer here is because of the pre-tribulational, uh, pre-mill position that, that I hold and teach and preach from. They hold to the amillennial position and therefore attend churches that are like-minded in the end times as what they are. And amillennialists believe that Satan, from the time Christ died on the cross, Satan is bound in a holding place in the abyss, in the prison, in darkness now, and that we are living in the millennial age now. There's not going to be a literal thousand-year reign that that we're just going to usher in the church reign. I, I, I know that you can't know for certain the future events and what's going on in the mind of God, but I do know this, that it's nearly impossible as far as I can tell for us to need, according to Ephesians chapter 6, to stand in the warfare and to put on the spiritual armor of God and to be instructed on how to stand against the warfare if Satan is bound and, and reserved in darkness. I also don't understand how Satan can be called the, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, if he is already bound and reserved in darkness. So I want us to have a healthy picture of... God of Christ and the gospel. I want us to have a healthy picture of Satan and his demons. I want us to have a biblical picture for what it is. I don't want us to go overboard and see a demon behind everything. And I also don't want to denounce uh, any spiritual warfare and, and spiritual involvement of all. I want us to have a healthy understanding to know who these people are, who these, these the Satan and his demons are, how they work. The Bible says that we need to stand against the wiles of the devil, that we need to understand that he is always seeking whom he may devour, and we need to have a healthy understanding of his existence and the ways that he's worked so that we can put on the spiritual armor of God and overcome him by the one who is greater who lives in us than he who lives in the world so that we can have a healthy biblical understanding of this one. And my prayer is, is that as we move forward in our study of Revelation chapter 9 and we see ultimately how these things come together, that they begin to make sense in Revelation chapter chapter 9 and again when we get to Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 9 what we see in closing, in Revelation chapter 9, we see that the key to the bottomless pit was given to this one who's the fallen star. And he opens the bottomless pit. And out of the bottomless pits came a locust upon the earth. And they each was given, uh, and power was given to them, uh, as the scorpions of the earth have power. We also see this pit when we come to Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, then. Verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, four times. They definitely want to know who he got a hold of. And bound him for a thousand years. And verse 3 says that until the thousand years were completed, and after these things, he must be released for a short time. So ultimately, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be, in fact, he must be, as the same word is used when John told, when Jesus told John, you must be born again, same word used here, Satan must be released. Why must he be released? We'll look at that when we get here. Satan will be released from the prison, and then ultimately, he will be judged and 
cast into the lake of fire forever. So this idea of the abyss, the bottomless pit, this prison, these demons, we're going to see time and time again, beginning next week as we study Revelation chapter 9 and move forward. And so may God give us um, a healthy biblical understanding of who these are. May we not give them more power than they deserve, but may we not diminish their workings as well. You know, when I say may we not give them more power than they deserve, we see that a lot. How many times do you hear people say, when you say, well, why did you do that? They say, the devil made me do it. You ever heard that before? Mm -hmm. Beloved, I want you to know that Jesus says, and the Bible says in the book of James, that the reason you do the things you do is you don't need the devil to make you sin. There's enough lust and darkness in your own life to cause you to sin. You, and at least me, I don't know about you, but me, I don't need any help from the devil sinning. I've got enough in me to do it on my own. One of the reasons I think people use that, the devil made me do it, is if the devil made you do it, then you, number one, have no personal responsibility because you're not as powerful as the devil. And number two, you, you have no personal responsibility to struggle against it and to stop it. And that's just not true. So I want us to be careful with our words. I want us to have a biblical understanding of Satan and his authority and, and what he does. I want you to understand that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And therefore, Satan and his demons are ultimately not to be feared. But we do have to engage in spiritual warfare against them. Remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Right? But it's in the spiritual enemies and forces of darkness. And I'm just going to tell you this that the number one weapon that Satan uses in the lives of a pastor and yes, in the life of a church plant. Hear me carefully. This might be the most important thing I say today. The dev- what, what is the number one weapon that he uses in the life of pastors? I've bowed it my whole ministry and I've seen it in church plants. And I've seen it at times even in this church plan, in different people at different times. He knows that He can't cause you to stumble because you are safe and secure in Christ in terms of eternal life. He knows He can't kill you because God is the one who gives your life and when you die, you ultimately go there. He knows that you have spiritual weapons and that if you use those spiritual weapons against Him, you can stand against the wiles of the devil. You can identify the schemes of Him. And so He doesn't use any of those means typically in His attack on people. You know what He uses? Discouragement. Because if He can discourage you, then, beloved, you're no longer putting on the armor of God and fighting the wiles of the devil and standing up for truth and doing the things that you do. You know what you're doing? You're laying down your arms and having a pity party. He uses discouragement in my life as a pastor and He uses discouragement in your life as well by bringing questions well, is this ever going to happen? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? What, what, and, right? and it's all these things that ultimately may never even come to pass, but even the very thought of those questions in our mind or voiced on the lips of another person can rest heavily on our souls and cause discouragement and depression and darkness to come in where we simply lay down our weapons in defeat and Satan gets the victory every time. You need to understand that discouragement and depression may be regular. It may be a part of life in the fallen world and who we are. And some of us are more susceptible to those things than others. But I want you to understand that it is the work of the devil. Because if the devil can get you discouraged, you will not pray. 
You will not read your Bible. You will not witness. You will not invite people to church. You will not have the strength and energy to engage in the work of the ministry. If He can get you depressed and discouraged and despondent, you will not lead your family well. You'll not serve your family well. You'll not put your all in the work that you do. You could, I could go on and on and on about the impact of discouragement and depression and those things in the lives of people. And I'm telling you, I believe that it is the work of the devil and the only tool that He has against us. Everything else is overcomable by God. And everything else is overcomable by Christ who lives in us. And so, beloved, we need one another. We need to hold up one another's arms. We need to encourage one another and edify. We need to call out a brother or sister who is becoming critical and becoming negative and giving a place for discouragement to come in. And we need to carry the arms of those who have slipped into depression. And we need to walk beside them and help them through that battle because the next day the battle will be ours and we'll need them to come along and walk that journey with us. May God help us to have a biblical understanding of Satan and his demons and the tools that he uses to against us. And may God use this to encourage us to engage in the warfare and to bring God the glory with our lives and not paralyze us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, I thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word today and to be reminded of these truths. Father, I pray that You would allow Your truth to rest upon our hearts and lives. I pray, Father, that when we look out around us and we see the evil in this world and we see people acting in ridiculous ways and doing stupid things, Father, may we not see just the flesh body of that person but may we understand that something deeper perhaps is going on there may we understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood may we understand that we do have an enemy but he is a defeated foe and ultimately one day will be removed from our presence forever Father, until that day, I pray that His presence may draw us close to You. I pray that understanding that He is out there, seeing who we may devour, may cause us to run to You. And I pray, God, that You would um, enable us to care for the souls of one another in overcoming the tool of discouragement in the life of uh, one another. And that we would press ahead in that which You've called us to do with life and with liberty and with boldness. And we pray and give the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to invite you to stand.